0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, good morning, Red Door Church, and a special good morning and happy Mother's Day to all of our mums. I hope that you have been thoroughly spoiled already today by your kids and and your household. Um, As someone now who has lived for over 30 years without my mum and for 10 years has witnessed Renee be the mum to our kids, I can say with sincerity, I thank God for the gift of motherhood and of mothers and so it's probably appropriate today that we come to the spiritual discipline or the habit of grace that is feasting because in our culture at least, Mother's Day has become this feast day for us. It's a a day arranged around food in some ways, whether it's kind of burnt toast in bed at breakfast and then moving on to some kind of family meal at lunch or dinner or both. Um, This is a day where we tend to feast together and I said last week that I thought one of the reasons we don't really do fasting very well is because we have so much. We, we have such an abundance of food that it, it's, it seems unnatural for us to participate in the practice of fasting. And so if that's true, then naturally we probably think, well, if, if we're no good at fasting because we have too much, then obviously we'll be good at feasting because we have so much. And actually, I don't really think that's the case. And I think we probably aren't very good at feasting because we have eaten the bread of our culture, so to speak. We have imbibed the culture around us and their view of food and of consumption. And so I want to look at that the, the our kind of culture's uh, approach to food, their um, philosophy of food for a moment and see the two ends of the spectrum where we get it wrong and why it is then that we miss the gift of God in the discipline of feasting. So when it comes to our culture, I think we're a little bit confused about what to do with food and we tend towards these two extremes. At one extreme, we reduce food and feeding down to this biological activity. It's a, it's a monotonous, repetitive fueling up of our bodies. We've, we've reduced food to be fuel and, and that's why we fall into patterns of um, eating at our desk, right? lunch has gone from a, an hour to to withdraw from work and enjoy the gift of God in food. And it's now become, let me just eat whatever I can, maximum energy food to get me through to the next task. And in fact, I will continue to do this task while I eat at my desk or it's um, receiving food through your window and eating while driving or it's you know maybe even getting out of your car to eat the burger but it's burger in one hand phone in the other and we've reduced food and eating down to this very base level biological activity and uh this is nowhere better illustrated than in this new product called soylent Soylent is this meal replacement drink that is advertised as maximum nutrition for minimal effort. It is kind of a scientific approach to feeding whereby they combine all of these ingredients into a liquidized form, pump it up with vitamins, and it's meant to replace what we used to do when we, you know, chewed our food. And it's kind of a... a, Indictment of this reduction of seeing food as merely merely fuel um, another approach to food at the other end of the spectrum is one we 're very familiar with here in Melbourne and that 's the evolu- the, so the elevation of food. To this kind of godlike status. This is where foodie culture comes from. This is where you get deconstructed coffee. It's where you get everything artesian and organic. And uh, I'm not against any of those things, but they are the product of this, this elevation of food to kind of a, a godlike status. And The interesting thing is that at both ends of that spectrum, where we reduce food down to this very scientific, very base level, mechanical, food is fuel, through to the elevation of food as God, something to be worshipped, at both ends of the spectrum we miss the most important thing we need to know about food, and that is that it's a good gift from God. If we're going to understand the spiritual discipline, the, the habit of grace that is feasting, and really just a broad spectrum view of food and eating that is biblical, then we need to know this truth that sits at the heart of it, and that is to see the grace of God in the goodness of creation. So in the first view, right, where everything's reduced down, that, that view misses the, f- the fact that food is actually good. Food is a good gift from God. It's something wonderful and beautiful. It's it's something to exalt in and to enjoy. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the other view, they need to see that, that food is not God but a gift of God. That food is creation, not creator. That there is something more to be enjoyed than just the enjoyment of food itself. That actually food is designed so that we wouldn't just experience the pleasure of eating a good steak, but we would experience the joy of worshipping the giver of that gift, which actually enhances the joy. If we take God out of the picture and just see food as an end in itself, then we exchange something transcendent, experience of worshipping God through food, we exchange something transcendent for something temporal, something that expires once I'm finished eating the steak. And so when we see food as a springboard into something greater, then we can truly experience food in all of its glory without giving it the glory. So in both cases, at both extremes, when we fail to see the grace of God in the goodness of creation, then we miss out on something good that food has to offer us. And so I want to look at this fundamental principle that feasting is an amen to the grace of God in the goodness of creation. It's said that Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, loved his beer, and his wife was a renowned beer brewer in Germany. And it said that whenever he tasted a particularly good draught of ale, he would exclaim loudly, "Good creature!" And that is so perfect. That is such a perfect thing to say when you have tasted something good, whether it be food or drink, to say good creature affirms what we've been laying out as the foundation for good feasting. That is, that this thing that I have eaten or drunk is a gift from God, this creature This thing is created by a loving creator. This food is good, but it's not God. God is the giver. The food or drink is the gift. And so to see the truth of this claim that we see the grace of God in the goodness of creation, in this case, food and drink and feasting, I want us to go back to right to the beginning right back to creation. And you're going to see here in Genesis chapter 1 that from the beginning God created all things, including food and drink. All things were created good. So in Genesis 1 and verse 31, it says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. So all things he has made, Everything in creation, very good. And then specifically, when it comes to the food that He's provided for us, in, again, Genesis 1, look. I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you. So out of his good creation, he provides food for us to enjoy, food that is good, a good gift from a good giver. And then after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, he extends the food, the good food that has been given to us, to include, praise the Lord, the animals themselves. So in Genesis 9, in verse 3, he says, Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I have given you Everything. So God takes the abundance of his creation in plants and in animals and offers them to his people as a gift, a good gift from a good God to be enjoyed and to be given that was given to us as a springboard for thanksgiving, praise, worship, enjoyment. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 4 it says this: For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so you have this invitation to enjoyment, an invitation to relish and to revel in the good gifts of God in food and drink, in plants and animals. All things are given to us to be received with thanksgiving. That is, that they should give way to praise and worship. And so we have this habit of grace, which is feasting, the enjoyment of God's provision in food. Now, you can do this in every meal that you enjoy. Every meal down to every snack can be an opportunity and should be an opportunity for us to worship. Because all of the food that we eat, from the most glorious meal to the most humble snack, all of it is gift And therefore, all of it can be received with thanksgiving. All of it can be a springboard to praise. But today I want to focus in on this particular habit of grace, which is feasting. Now, we've said over and again in this series, the way of Jesus, that these habits are habits that we employ as Jesus' disciples, as his apprentices, as we seek to live the way that he lived. And so we practice silence and solitude and prayer and Bible reading these things because we want to follow Jesus and Jesus showed us the way to live pursuing these habits of grace. And so it is with feasting. You'll notice that Jesus is frequently, almost constantly sitting down to eat with people. Robert Karras says that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, coming from a meal or at a meal. And we saw this in a series we preached through last year called Meals with Jesus, that he is just frequently using the opportunity of sitting down with people both to enjoy the goodness of God in the gift of food and to demonstrate what God is like in extending welcome to those who would otherwise be on the fringes of society. That meals themselves are a foretaste of the age to come, The restored creation where we will eat and drink with not only with one another, but in God's presence. All of these things are part of this tapestry, which is the habit of grace in feasting. And so every meal is an opportunity to praise God for the goodness of creation, the the gift of food and drink. But for 3,000 years, God's people have marked out time, set aside time specifically to celebrate together around the table. And this is the habit of feasting that I want to look at for the rest of our time. And I want to get, as with all of these Sermons in this series we haven 't gone too deep into the theology of it so that we can spend time in the practical application of it and, and that 's where I want to spend the rest of our time today. I want to look at ten ground rules for good feasting All right These are ground rules that I think you should employ as you go about the practice of feasting with one another and so here are my ten ground rules for feasting number one start with the why. So when you're at the point of putting together this feast in your mind, when you're in the planning phase, don't just go straight to this is the food that we're going to eat or these are the people we're going to invite, but begin with the why. Why are we doing this? It's not just so that we can show off our new set of cutlery to people. I don't know. It's not, it's, it's not fundamentally about the feast itself. It's fundamentally about the worship of God that's going to happen in this meal. And so start with that as the why. Fundamentally, we are gathering together to affirm the truth that God is gracious and his creation is good. God is gracious and his creation is good. So you need to frame the whole evening around that central truth in order for it to be the spiritual discipline, the habit of grace that is feasting. Number two, invite the unlikely. Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just so along with the people you naturally gravitate towards the people that you want to be around and invite to your house think about who can we invite who's on the fringes of our society who's on the fringes of our church group Right? The people who may not otherwise be invited to this party. Think about people who may, maybe get overlooked. If you are inviting a bunch of married people around to your house, think about who is the single person that I can invite to this? Who is the elderly person? Right. Who are the people who would otherwise miss out and invite them? That makes it a Jesus kind of meal and not just another party. Number three kill the distractions. Now, I love open floor plans. All right? I love at our house that when you come in the door, everything opens up in front of you. I, I love that. But one of the sad things about modern architecture is that we've gotten rid of our dining rooms. Dining rooms used to be this intimate space in which we would just be focused on the table and the people around it. And whereas today, Everywhere you sit down to eat, whether it's at home or at a restaurant, there's some kind of screen grabbing for your attention. This annoys me so much that whenever we go out to eat as a family, we we always have to try and arrange the seating away from the TV screens that are ubiquitous in the restaurant. It's so irritating. Now, the same thing is going to happen if you allow it to happen in your house at your feast. So here's what you do. As soon as people come in the door, you have a bucket or a bowl of some kind and you say, this is the phone bucket. And into this bucket, you are going to put your phones, your devices, anything that's going to distract you during this meal you can put the phone here and leave it until you leave at the end of the night, all right? And then for people who have babysitters at home that need to be contacted, you set it up ahead of time. This goes back to planning in advance, setting the vision, you know, coming to terms with the why. You organize it so that the babysitter has a different phone number. Maybe it's your phone number as the host of the feast, but either way, phones in the bucket, TVs turned off, and you kill every distraction that might come in and rob you of the opportunity to actually enjoy the being in the present at this feast for this purpose. Number four, weight watchers, schmate schmoches. <laughs> All right, so being health conscious is great. Seeing your body as a gift from God, just like He gave you food, He gave you your body. In both cases, this should be treasured and it should be stewarded well, right? All of that is great. Counting macros, whatever, all that is good, but not at the feast. At the feast, you leave all of that stuff at the door and you come in ready to eat as much as you can without any sense of guilt or shame about how much you've had. I'm I'm talking about going back for seconds and thirds without guilt or shame or self-consciousness. Forget your macros. Forget the Weight Watchers. You're just here to feast. Number five, kids eat free. Right, similar to the previous point. It's great to be conscious of what your kids eat to make sure they have their veggies and have, you know, eat a balanced diet, but not tonight. At the feast, kids eat free. That is, they eat whatever they want. If they want to you know, eat a bowl of chips and a cup of Nutella, then that's fine. Right? We're not going to be preoccupied with making sure the kids are getting all of their macronutrients in. All right? Tonight, kids eat free. Number six, ban nonversation. So without being pedantic or rude, you as the host just take responsibility for preventing the conversation from regressing into non-versation. nonversation. Nonversation is what I call small talk or shop talk, right? Getting preoccupied with talking about work or just grumbling about things. You want to direct conversation to uh, things that bring joy to the people participating in the conversation. Right? Direct us towards things that we can celebrate together. That's your job as the host. Number seven, make it all you can eat. Remember, this is feasting, not just feeding. This is about gathering together and practicing an abundance mindset. Right? We've come to this feast to acknowledge that God is a gracious giver of good gifts. And so we are going to accept the abundance of his provision in the amount of food before us. If you are hosting the meal, then plan to have too much. Plan to have leftovers for tomorrow night and the following night. If you're attending the feast, then go back for seconds and thirds without doing that apologetic thing that we've find ourselves doing for some reason, right? This is the purpose of our gathering together, to enjoy the abundant goodness of God in the provision of this food. Number eight, do MKR and KFC. All right, you got My Kitchen Rules. And Kentucky Fried Chicken at opposite ends of the spectrum. This end is all chef and glitzy and glamorous. The other end is fried chicken and a bucket. And I'm saying both of these ends of the spectrum are good platforms for feasting well. Remember, the focus is not on the thing itself, but on the acknowledgement that God is a gracious giver of good gifts. And so we shouldn't stress over one extreme or the other. Some of us are given to one end, some of us are given to the other. There's going to be different times for different. Expressions. all right? So sometimes you're going to want to plan ahead months in advance, do it glitzy and glamorous. Sometimes it's just going to be on the afternoon. You're going to say, let's just get some people around and feast on some fried chicken and a bucket. And both of these are good things. We shouldn't stress too much over being at one end or the other of the spectrum. Number nine, get in your practice. So this is, again, true of every habit of grace that we've been looking at. It requires practice. It requires time and ongoing practice for us to get good of these things. Whether it's prayer or silence or the mortification of sin or feasting, all of these things require regular practice. And so if the first feast you throw kind of falls in a heap, don't worry about it. No one's good at this from the beginning. This is something that we need to Practice in order to get good at it. We need to be able to take time to unlearn some of the cultural misapprehensions about food that we talked about at the beginning of this message and to then reinvest in a biblical view of food and feasting that's in line with the fact that God is a gracious giver of good gifts. All right, so take time to practice and to learn this, to learn the art and the craft of feasting. Well, number 10, seat Jesus at the center. This is the most important one. We need to learn how to make this whole experience an experience of worship. How do we seat Jesus in the center of this whole experience? And you can do this in many ways. Again, going back to the first point, understanding the why of, of the feast is, is an important first step. But then throughout the night, you can employ little liturgies that help keep us on track, help keep us focused on this as an act of worship, whether it's holding hands and saying grace at the beginning, singing a hymn at some point during the evening, or saying a psalm together. You might like to light candles, which historically are symbolic of God's presence with us. I mean, there are, whole, there are many different ways that you can just re-emphasize throughout the night the reason that we're gathered together and to keep Jesus at the center of all we're doing together. Now, on that note, the verse that comes to mind that kind of anchors all of this together is a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 You could make this part of the liturgy of your feast. It says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's at the very heart of our approach to feasting as we follow the way of Jesus. So with that in mind, let me just say the grace for us. Friends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God